I've known in the, uh, the churches of which I served in um, over uh, a few years I have, individuals who have been to varying degrees uh, addicted to alcohol, uh, addicted to drugs in various forms, addicted to internet pornography. I've, I've known people who have had sex outside of marriage, both homosexual and heterosexual. People who have been criminally fraudulent at work on a number of occasions. There could well be people here who, if you knew... The reality of their lives. In your eyes, you would say, oh, they've done a lot worse than what you've just said. There perhaps are people here, just seats away from you, who have lost control in road rage of their anger. There may be people here who have stolen, who have lied, who have cheated, who have manipulated, who have been violent. And all that amongst regular churchgoers. How should we react to that kind of moral failure in churches today? And and how does the society at large around us uh, react to that kind of moral failure? I mean, should we look outside and see if we can learn anything from the society around us? Where should we get our guidance from? What do we see as we look out? On On one hand, you see that kind of right-wing tabloid view, the the headlines that rage and they point the finger, don't they, at certain moral kind of depravity, as they might describe. You can imagine the the headline and the Daily Mail, can't you? That kind of thing. And and certain evil in our society, as they put down. They, of course, do that in comparison to their standard and and what they expect uh, for this country. At that point, the journalist, or probably more importantly, the editor, becomes, becomes the, the, the moral arbiter, swayed by populist thinking, as they're at the mercy, aren't they, of the, the paper-buying public. So you see, for them, and journalists and uh, many others, it's acceptable, isn't it, to write abusive columns about those who have done things that in their mind are morally depraved. And they can be uh, very rude, uh, very dismissive. Uh, we can, they can expose those involved in benefit fraud and, and, and malign them to such a way that kind of makes them even subhuman. They can campaign against paedophiles who, who may have actually served their time and be repentant about what they have done and seeking to start a new life, but they'll be hounded out of various places. But it's interesting, isn't it? Those same journalists, those same editors, they're very, very happy to turn a blind eye to, them, to themselves and some of the things that are involved in their lives. There are many in our society that have that very traditional, moralistic kind of finger-pointing uh, viewpoint and background. And I guess that they might look into a, ch- a church made up of a, a, a mixed bunch of people, a mixed bunch of backgrounds, and they would probably point the finger and shout, you bunch of hypocrites. Are they right? And we're moulded, aren't we, by that kind of moralistic, finger-pointing uh, kind of thinking. But sometimes we're also moulded by a different way of thinking. That kind of liberal, relativistic way of, uh, you know, your mind goes. Where judgement or right and wrong is, is just shunned. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, a liquid thing, isn't it? It's postmodern. Anything goes. It's very popular. Laissez-faire, you know, that kind of French term, which basically means let do, leave it be. It allows the individual to determine everything in their lives. 
So it doesn't matter what you or I say, what we think, what we do. We just need to accept everyone and what they do and, and, and as they are. Tolerance is kind of the watchword, isn't it, of the culture. And that is a very prevalent view in this country, and especially in this great city of London. So in our culture, you see, you get this rather confusing blend. On the one hand, you have this kind of right-wing, finger-pointing moralism, determined on on their own, you know, what is right and wrong. On the other hand, you have this kind of postmodern liberalism. Now, bringing those things together... And what you find, you get this kind of melting pot of viewpoints. It basically means you and I can do whatever we want in our private lives. But in public, there are limits, depending on what the masses think. And what they think is right for you individually at that particular time. So you see, a newspaper editor... Even a banker that were in a paper recently, they can go to a, you know, a strip club on a, on a Friday night and snort a few lines of cocaine, and, and that's not news. And, but it's not good, it's not applauded, um, but it's not unacceptable. But if a Premier League footballer were to go to the same club and do the same thing, uh, they are deemed as, uh, you know, they're saying they are a role model. The masses determined that they should be, have a higher standard. And, you know, they, they need to be the model for the young fans. Now, the, the editor who writes that is exempt from that responsibility. And so is the banker. If they go there, I'm, I'm not getting at bankers here, right? Or any kind of journalists here. But you know what I mean? They're just relaxing after a hard day at work. Do you see how confusing society can be? And we haven't even got to politicians yet. So what about the church? (coughs) The moral traditionists and the the postmodern relativists, they're they're two extremes. And and what I'm going to offer you tonight is is not a fudge in the middle. It's not a a kind of sit-on-the-fence compromise. It is a totally radical, counter-cultural view, an alternative of how we are to um, respond to moral failure in our society. And we see that view as provided in Jesus. I think it's something all of us need to uh, understand. And if we're Christians here tonight, it's something we need to, to, to look at again, to be reminded. But if we're, we are here and this is all new to us, then listen for a moment. Uh, give yourself a fresh look. Why don't you come with me and look at verse 9 to begin with. Uh, and we'll begin the story there. As, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told them. And Matthew got up and followed him. If you turn to your sheets, you've seen I've put uh, a couple of points down there. The first point that, um, and I'll go from these verses here. Jesus has come for sinners. That's what we see in these uh, first couple of verses. Now this story, as you heard it read, might not seem too odd to you. But I want you to understand the tax collector of the first century. To be a a tax collector meant that you were essentially uh, morally and spiritually quite a failure in comparison to many. So we see uh, Matthew, he was a Jew, but he had compromised himself to work alongside the Romans who were governing that place at that time. Those Romans who oppressed God's people. And the tax collectors had little accountability And therefore they extorted, they overcharged all of their countrymen. They were pretty much hated because of that. And therefore they got very rich very quickly, but always with dirty money, if you know what I mean. 
It would be like, I don't know, Boris Johnson, our slightly flamboyant London mayor. You know, sort of, I'm going to hike up um, council tax for, by 10% just this coming year. We'd all rejoice, wouldn't we? No, no. But, you know, and I'm going to do it in order that I can buy, a, you know, a 20-bedroom flat overlooking Regent's Park with, you know, a nice little swimming pool underneath and a roof terrace on top. You know, we'd be, it would be an outrage, wouldn't there, in London? Well, perhaps that gives you a glimpse into how Matthew, as a tax collector, was understood at his time. He was a moral and spiritual disgrace. And what does Jesus say to him? Do you see? Shove off. You're horrible. No, it doesn't actually say that, does it? It says, follow me. And not just Matthew. You go to verse 10, you see there's more. Uh, While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners, it says, came and ate with him and his disciples. Now, the Bible is clear that all people are, as the Bible describes, sinners. All of us have, that is, fallen short of a perfect and holy standard of which God requires for each one of us, because that's what he is. We'll come to that more in a moment. But, But note here that what Jesus has done is he's gone to the lowest rung. For when this passage describes sinners, you see that in inverted commas, it's speaking of people like tax collectors. I guess if we were to contemporise that verse and, and put in some people who we might consider as sinners, it would be like Jesus' dinner guests. They might include the prostitutes, the paedophiles, the leaders of genocides, the rapists, the murderers. Moral, spiritual failures. The, the obviously Daily Mail headline, wicked people of this world. And Jesus has lunch with these people. And in that culture, that symbolised uh, acceptance and relationship. If you ate with someone, if you sat down, if you reclined with someone, as you would be doing, that said, I accept you. Look at verse 11 with me, if you can. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, no, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, the point is clear, isn't it? I hope it's obvious. Jesus has come for the moral and spiritual failures of this world. Hence verse 12. Jesus essentially puts himself as the place of a doctor, doesn't he? He's come to heal the spiritually and morally sick. People like Matthew in the story. Over the last few weeks we've been looking at the, the verses before this passage. Uh, in Matthew 8 and 9. And we've seen that Jesus will one day come. It's like the final moment of history. To establish this perfect, heavenly, eternal kingdom. And that will break in. At that point, he will judge the whole world. But we've also seen that he's come before, as we're reading in chapters 8 and 9 of of Matthew and the whole of the gospel there. And he's come in first century Judea. Uh, But why did he come? Last week we saw he's come for humanity's greatest need, the forgiveness of our sin, the pardon we need before a holy and perfect God who we've fallen short of his standard. But the question, I suppose, that rises from this passage is, who are the sinners? Well, look around you. 
in comparison to some, we may look rather upright. Oh, we're fairly nice, aren't we? You'd help an old lady across the road. You you grew up in a nice suburb. You're middle class. You're well-educated. You have a nice job. You drive a nice car. Well, the Bible tells us that we are to varying degrees sick. We have to ask ourselves, all of that is peripheral. What about our moral and spiritual state? So you see, Jesus hasn't come for good people. He hasn't come just as a good example, though he was. He hasn't come just as a good moral teacher, though he was. He's come to heal eternally for that eternal heavenly kingdom of which all these passages point towards which makes the church a spiritual hospital if you like so what should we expect in church well sick people spiritually sick people but I guess that leads us to a question leads us to our second point and hopefully a bit of soul searching who are the sinners more personally, I've put in the point, do we see ourselves as sinners? I don't know, it's sometimes parody, isn't it? You know, some people say, two extremes, it's very cartoonish, isn't it? But are you the sinner or are you the saint? You know, you're one or the other, aren't you? Which one, sinner or saint? I guess most of us like to think we're, we're more saint than sinner, don't we? Uh, you know, the good outweighs the occasional naughtiness. Yeah, that kind of thing. That's the way we like to think, isn't it? A little over-exuberance in the pub on a Friday night with your colleagues. You know, that's kind of outweighed by the, oh, I'm a good, outstanding citizen of this country and I, you know, I do my bit and I pay my taxes. Yeah, that kind of stuff. Well, look at verse 11 again. If I, 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 the Pharisees clearly got this wrong. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and sinners? Try and remember who the Pharisees are. They're people who worked very, very hard at being good. To be seen to be good. They were religious, they were very zealous. They looked morally and spiritually upright. So verse 11 isn't really a question, it's more of an accusation. Why does your teacher Jesus eat with those kind of people? In reality they're thinking, Jesus, you shouldn't be with them, you should be with us. We're much better than them. Jesus, you've got it wrong. I was trying to think of a parallel with this. You know the kind, anyone goes to a gym here? You know the kind of people who seem to live in gyms? Whenever you go, they're always in the same place, um, on the same treadmill, on, doing the same weights, or on the same cross-trainer things, which make you look slightly ridiculous, but you know how it goes. You know, no matter what time you go, they always seem to be there, on those little big, ba- well, those bouncy ball things, doing 500 sets of crunches and all that kind of stuff. Always smiling. Always a little bit more tan than the weather should suggest. You know the kind of people? And um, they know the names of the instructors at the gym. That's quite sad in my mind. But uh, they're the in crowd and they all wear the same kind of thing, don't they? Virtually nothing. Um, but you, you have to admit they're very strong, they're very fit. They look you know, pretty impressive as a bunch of people. But what happens when someone comes into the gym, it's their first day... They've got some baggy trousers on, the biggest shirt that they could get on to cover up the stuff that they've put on, eating too much and all that kind of thing. Scruffy hair, normal kind of skin colour for the year. And, you know, what happens when they get on the bike of the in crowd? You know the kind of thing? 
you, you know, there they are. They're doing their 300 set of crunches, looking amazing, still smile on the orange face. You know, and, and scruffy fat boy over there has just got on my bike. Yeah, what's going on? What are they thinking? They're saying, get out of here, aren't they? You're in the wrong place. You don't look right in this place. Here with my rippling abs, you get out. Well, the Pharisees are just like that. Yeah, you've got to work your imagination there, haven't you? But there we go. <laughs> the Pharisees are just like that. They look the part. They look great. They, they work very hard at looking the part. The Pharisees weren't perfect, but compared to the tax collectors, they look amazing. So they thought, surely they must be okay with God. And I guess there'll be people here tonight that you also think, oh, I'm okay with God, because in comparison to person X, and, and you know, if you see what person Y does, in comparison to them, God must surely accept me because I'm so much better than them. Not perfect, but I'm okay. Especially comparing to that person we saw in the paper the other day. Well, let me say to you, while you think like that, like the Pharisees did, you will never understand Jesus. Because he's come as the doctor, if you like, here. If you think you're fit and healthy before the perfect and holy God, you will never see the point of Jesus coming. Likewise, you can't see your moral and spiritual sickness. If you can't, you'll never see the point of Jesus. You've got to ask yourself, are you spiritually and morally perfect before a perfect and righteous God? Look at the end of verse 13. The implications are there. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And Jesus is not saying there are some righteous people that don't need him here. The previous four chapters in the gospel, uh, in Matthew's gospel, made that perfectly clear. I doubt any of us here would say, oh, I'm completely the saint. There's nothing in me that is kind of wrong at all, you know. I'm perfectly right with God. I don't think any of us would say that. No, simply Jesus is saying that there aren't some good people and some bad people in the, in the world. We might make our judgments, but Jesus has said throughout Matthew's gospel and for all his ministry... We, we are all in our hearts the same. We are all bad. We are all sinful to varying degrees. You get to the end of chapter 7 of Matthew's Gospel. And the, there is one difference remains in the people. There are those that are bad and I think they are bad before God. And there are those that are bad that I think they are good before God. The Pharisees. And that's a precarious position to be in. See, Jesus didn't come for those who think they are good. He came for the morally and spiritually sick who recognised that they were sick before God. And he comes to offer us forgiveness for that sickness, for that moral failure, restoration with God that all our moral sickness has caused. You know when you go to a job interview, I guess many of you have done that over the last few years, you dress up smart, don't you? You put your hair in the, if you've got hair, you put it in the right place and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, you, you manufacture a credible CV that you can hand over. You might even go to one of those headhunter folks to coach you through. And probably a number of you do all that kind of stuff. But, you know, you help people through the process. You do everything in your power, don't you, to impress that interviewer for the job. But can you imagine 
if you were to do that the next time you went to see a doctor? You dress up smart. Uh, You go into the the doctor's surgery. You try to convince them how healthy you are. That would be utterly ridiculous, wouldn't it? Most of us do just the opposite, don't we? You know when we're feeling a little bit sick and we're looking for some medicine? There, Felicity is nodding because she's a doctor. Yeah, there we go. Scruff up the hair a bit, if you've got hair. You know, you wear your rubbish clothes and you sort of walk into the surgery. Hello, doctor. You know, cough at the right times and, you know, groan a bit and all that kind of stuff. You get... You get the most effect you possibly can. You see, to see a doctor, you've just got to be ill. That's it. Likewise, to know and to follow and to be accepted by Jesus, you've just got to be a sinner. And I think we all qualify for that. We don't have to clean ourselves up before we can come to him. Nothing has to be sorted out. We just come as we are. It's the great distinction between all other world religions and the Christian faith. Every other world religion says, you've got to come and you've got to do something to merit yourself before God or to reach that final state of nirvana, whatever it may be. To be accepted by Jesus, to get into that heavenly eternal kingdom that Matthew 8 to 9 has all been pointing towards. We have to do nothing. Just follow him as we are. And he will accept and he will forgive us and begin to transform us through his word and by his spirit. But no, this is not an an unprincipled acceptance. That's kind of the postmodern way of thinking, isn't it? You know, many people kind of think these today. This is not kind of anything goes here by Jesus. This is not free acceptance of anything or anyone. Jesus is accepting, but he's, he's not saying that because it's of what we do or anything like that. Jesus is not saying, I'm accepting everyone because everything is now okay with me. He's not saying that about you or I. That would be like a doctor saying to Amy Winehouse a few months ago, you know, drinking three bottles of gin a day, as apparently she was, you'll be fine. You just keep going. Don't let anyone tell you that's going to kill you which is what our friends were saying. That postmodern relativist type of thinking is so destructive when it logically is worked through. That kind of thinking is just thoughtless acceptance without any principle behind it. Jesus, however, accepts. And he doesn't say, you guys, you're all fine. No, he says, you're all ill. We are all ill. You are sinners. And it matters. Before a holy and perfect God. He says you may be a moral and spiritual failure. But I will forgive you. And I will deal with your sin. And as you read on through Matthew's gospel. The story goes on. And you will see that nothing less. Than Jesus' shed blood on a cross is given to deal with yours and my sin. You see, Jesus takes sin very seriously. So although Jesus accepts us as we are, it doesn't mean we stay as we are. It means there's some kind of change in us. But the change happens and begins through what Jesus achieves on the cross. For in him dying, if we follow him, he counts that perfect life that he has lived, he counts it as yours. 
And he places your ill, dirty, sinful life and the punishment that it deserves on him. Jesus essentially is saying to each of us tonight, to use this little story here, let me pull up a chair. Let me eat with you. Let me accept you. And let me start a relationship with you. The question is for all of us, will we follow? Will we accept? If you accept his death on the cross for your sins, you will be forgiven. That justice your sins deserve will be dealt with on the cross and you will have that perfect sinless life counted as yours when you stand before God at judgment. Do we see ourselves as sinners? The first step, that is it. If you do, then you'll need a doctor. His name is Jesus. And the wonderful truth to finish with is Jesus accepts sinners with mercy. See, if you want to know uh, God and enjoy him forever in that eternal kingdom that these passages have been pointing to, you need to trust in Jesus who accepts us in his wonderful kindness and mercy. I hope you want that and I, I hope you're also praying for your friends so that they might hear of that mercy too, perhaps at Christmas. Pray because the alternative to this eternal kingdom, which Matthew 8 and 9 points to, the alternative is horrifying. If you want to know God's love forever, then you need mercy, not sacrifice. Hence why he says this in verse 13. Have a look at it. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Mercy from God in forgiving us is what we need and what God desires in us through Jesus. It's not the outward performance of a sacrificial life, a good life. That is important. It is a good thing to do, but it's not primary. As sinners, we need mercy from God. But it is also desired in God's people. See, the Pharisees have got it so wrong, haven't they? They just judged and condemned and pointed the finger. And all too often churches around the world have done exactly the same. But God requires mercy from his people. For he has shown us ultimate mercy in sending his son Jesus to die on the cross. To forgive us for our sins. See Jesus accepts sinners with mercy. And we need to be merciful too to those we know. And tell them about Jesus who does want to accept them with his mercy. So what kind of people get into heaven or this eternal heavenly kingdom? Sinners. I think we all qualify. That is who Jesus has come for. Sinners who have accepted the mercy of God. That forgiveness of sins offered in Jesus and Jesus alone. Let's just finish with this. How should we respond to that mercy shown in Jesus? See, without Jesus, sinners as we are, we would all be facing God at judgment on our own and face a right and a just punishment for all of our sin. For all that, those times we've turned our back on him. The creator will judge his created and we'll all be found wanting without Jesus. So how do you respond to that mercy shown you in Jesus. I'm going to offer very, very quickly three responses to the mercy that Jesus has shown us. Firstly, I want to say celebrate. 
You see that in that little story from verse 14 to 17. It's a parallel there of a wedding, isn't it? Uh, And it's pointing us because it wants us to show that we need to have joy and celebrate. John's disciples are highlighted, aren't they, there by the Pharisees. Do you see that? As an example of religious observance, they're going without. Asceticism, basically. They were showing it's, that's that's a proper sign of religious zeal, isn't it? But Jesus has come, he's saying, and he uses this parallel of he's the bridegroom uh, and the church is the bride. And he's saying, oh, come on, this is a wedding feast. It should be joy. It should be celebration. I'm here. I'm ushering in this new eternal heavenly kingdom. Celebrate. The wineskins illustration is simply Jesus rebuking the Pharisees, isn't it? To not go back to old ways of religious uh, practices, a tradition there. Jesus saying, I've come for sinners. Celebrate, guys. There should be joy in our hearts. Secondly, have faith. In verses 18 to 34, uh, there are four miracles that Jesus performs before the crowds. Each miracle is restorative. It restores something. The the dead girl is brought back to life. The bleeding woman is healed. the, The blind can see. The mute can speak. And each story, in each story, faith is the key. That faith in Jesus, key to their restoration. They trust him, they know his power, and they put their lives in the hands of Jesus. Will you? Or do you trust yourself with your eternal life before God? And what about your friends and colleagues? Can they be trusted with their eternal lives before God? Or do they need faith in Jesus that will... Bring that restoration that you see in all of those four little uh, stories there. Just little pictures of the eternal restoration that only Jesus can bring. So how should we respond to Jesus? First, celebrate joy. Secondly, put your faith in him. Thirdly, proclaim. Verses 26 to thir- and 31. Do you notice both times when miracles are, are, are done, news of this spread through all the region. Why? The crowds were amazed at Jesus' power and his authority. So I have to ask a question to all of us, including myself. Why do we keep so quiet? Why do we keep so quiet about Jesus? Why is news not spreading throughout the region of Illsfield? We've not only seen small little miracles here. We've seen the greatest miracle of all when Jesus died on a cross. Jesus has come for sinners and he accepts those who trust in him with mercy and overwhelming love. So what do we need to do? We need to celebrate. We need to put our faith in him. And we need to proclaim him. Because Jesus is the true judge of our lives. Not the newspapers. Not the world around us. It's Jesus. He determines what is right and wrong. And he shed his blood on that cross to take justice from us and shower us with his love and his mercy. Just a moment of quiet, and then we're going to pray uh, together the prayer of confession on your, uh, on your sheets. <coughs> the reason we've put this here is simply because in hearing the word of God and seeing... Jesus has come for sinners. Many Christians just want to offer ourselves back to God. We've recognised that we've turned our back on him. And as Christians we want to pray and ask 
him for his forgiveness. And it's a commitment of faith as well, turning toward God. So it's just a moment of quiet to think about what we've, what we've been looking at in God's word and maybe reflecting on our own lives as well.